Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2, the safe space created for black women by black women to strip away the taboo of talking about mental health. You'll hear from mental health professionals and advocates as well as black women sharing their experiences as we break down the complexities, explore ways to heal and support each other. My name is Ashley, I'm your host. Whether you're a seasoned regular or this is your first time tuning in, thank you so much for your support. Now let's get into today's episode. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety 2. Um, happy holidays to everybody. Uh, by the way, I'm Ashley. I'm your host. Um, happy holidays to everybody. Uh, not to um, put a time on this episode, but it is December. We're almost to the end of the year, finally. Um, everybody is hopefully enjoying the holidays, getting a chance to either spend time with friends or spend time alone. I know some people just want to be alone and have a break for the holidays. Um, So if you're listening and if you're taking time out of your holidays to listen, I really appreciate you. Um, Today we have uh, one of our favorites on the show, Dr. Son Stevens. Um, She is kind of our in-house licensed psychologist. She has been on the show many a times. Um, People love Dr. Stevens. I love Dr. Stevens, so I'm happy to have her back on the show. Dr. Stevens, how are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you for having me, Miss Ashley. Yes, thank you. Um, so Dr. Stevens does a, a long list of amazing things, but I'm going to have her kind of give you guys um, an idea of what she does and why she's such an awesome person. So thank you very much. So I am a licensed psychologist in the state of Florida for about almost 15 years. Um, started out working with children and adolescents and families, but over the past couple of years, I've um, focused much more broadly on working with adults and with the older population. I do quite a bit of work in terms of psychological assessments and forensic assessments, and quite a bit of now, you know, branching into like research, understanding trauma um, as Black youth experience it, as well as um, some public social advocacy work um, with young women and girls as far as uh, mental advocacy, legal, um, as well as educational and financial advocacy. So just dabbling in quite a few areas right now. Yes, <laughs> lots of areas, lots of great things. Dr. Stevens, what, what is forensic? What are forensic assessments? What's that? So forensic assessments are generally assessments that are mandated through the court system in order to determine or assess whether an individual can stand um, trial, meaning that are they what are they competent enough to assist in their own defense? Um, do they have a mental health disorder? that interferes with their reasoning ability um, at the time in which they committed the crime. Um, like those are the two primary questions that we answer through um, forensic assessments. Um, there's a couple other areas in terms of um, assessing um, punishments, whether it be the, what um, more so in terms of understanding, well, helping us to understand or gain insight as whether the defendant understands or has the insight 
um, around the crimes that they committed and the impact that it had on the community or the individual that they offended against. So that's the primary impetus in terms of doing forensic assessments. Oh, wow. Okay. That's interesting. I never knew that. I know that you always mention it, but I'm always curious um, and wanted to ask you that. So thank you. Um, So today we're going to be talking a little bit about how to find the right therapist. So um, this is something surprisingly we have not done an episode on before, but this is just going to be a really easy guide on how to search for a therapist, how to choose the right therapist, um, and then, yeah, kind of what to look for in you know, when you're choosing a therapist or a uh, mental health professional to work with. So, um, uh, so Dr. Stevens, let's talk about um, when somebody goes to find a therapist, like, I, I guess I'll, I'll kind of start because I feel like when I start to start to look for a therapist, the first thing I went, the first thing I did is go to Dr. Google. And I went to Dr. Google and typed in therapist, Miami, Florida. At the time I was living in Miami. And I think I typed in like black woman therapist, uh, Miami, Florida. And that didn't, I mean, it was okay. The results were okay. It didn't really narrow things down um, as much as I would like. But I realized when doing that, that there's a lot of different platforms um, like Psychology Today. There is... Um, there's a lot of different websites, which will be in the description, but when you actually get to the person's profile, that's kind of like the step I want to talk about. So you get to the person's profile and this person has all these different things listed. Um, one of the first things I usually see is like the different types of therapy that offer. So sometimes I'll see like CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, sometimes I think psychotherapy is different. And I'm going to stop talking now because I don't know any of the other. (laughs) But Dr. Stevens, can you kind of give us just like a short overview of the different types of therapy that people might see when they're searching for a therapist? Yeah. And so, right. So typically, um, whenever you do Google search or search through psychology today, um, the provider will have a um, profile description. In the profile description, you will see like the types of modalities. So cognitive behavioral therapy. So this is a type of therapy that is the traditional and most often cited um, form of therapy. It targets um, your underlying beliefs that are associated with this regimented set of behaviors that leads to this outcome. And so part of the therapy is to challenge those underlying beliefs as well as the behaviors in order to affect the change. There's also psychodynamic theory and this is more so well let me just say before I go there um, cognitive behavioral therapy that's um, it can be short term so when I say short term between like four to six sessions depending on the presenting problem to six to twelve sessions so mid-range psychodynamic theory is um, the theory that's borrowed from Sigma Freud you know in terms of being able to understand that Source of problems start in childhood, and there there is this dynamic, um, and, and these underlying dynamics that the person may not necessarily, well, not me, more often than not, does not have insight to. And so, through psychodynamic or through that modality, 
the psychotherapist will work with the individual to understand what those dynamics are and how that plays out. You know, and of course, then from psychodynamics, you have quite a few like off branches. One of the more often or most often cited ones is object relations. And object relations is a form of, um, like I said, an offshoot of psychodynamic theory where it looks at relationships. So attached, so based on this idea of of, of relationships. So between the primary caregiver at birth and the child and how that key relationship affects and informs relationships throughout later in life. And we see quite a bit of research, you know, that supports that particular modality um, throughout certainly uh, the lifespan. So object relationships or object, object relations um, works with quite a few modalities, well, more so like presenting problems. So similar to CBT in terms of like depression, um, anxiety, interpersonal problems, things like that. Uh, we also, you may also see like interpersonal psychotherapy. That's a form of, of a psychotherapeutic approach um, that looks at relationships. So not necessarily relationships from the childhood perspective, but just the source of these relationships and understanding how a person communicates their social skills. So it breaks, um, interpersonal relationships down into its component parts. Um, you know, of course, you have like cognitive therapy that looks just at the beliefs, you know, behavioral therapy that looks at the behaviors. Um, there are quite a few therapies. Um, and then, of course, like there are the humanistic therapies. And the humanistic therapies, they more so use like at the base of it that each person brings their set of experiences and their set of experiences are valuable in and of itself and mm -hmm. so this idea is that people experience problems because they were not treated as a whole person they were treated as a piece so to speak you know so treating a person with unconditional positive regard meaning fully accepting you for who you are accounting for the good and the bad Mm. And through the reparative and restorative relationship of psychotherapy from a humanistic uh, perspective provides almost like a, uh, um, an opportunity for that individual to reconceptualize how they see themselves through this their psychotherapist who sees them as a whole person in light of all of their defects, if you will, or mm. their challenges. And so those are like the main like offshoots. And of course, you know, from that, you know, like we have like a lot of, well, I mean, those are the three like forces of, of psychotherapy. And then of course, if we have like the multicultural therapy, you know, that, and, and more so, you know, as opposed to that being like the fourth force of psychotherapy, that is that more so informs the other three forces. So okay. always integrating multicultural understanding you know, about individuals, whether it's from an ethnic, racial, uh, gender, um, sexual orientation perspective, always um, allowing that to be infused in the theoretical orientation. Mm, okay. I love that. That's a great breakdown. Cause I, I think the only thing that I recognized when I was looking at that a few years back, it was CBT. That's, I was like, I, I know what that is. And mm -hmm. that's probably it, <laughs> but no, that's super, super helpful. Um, so that kind of gives everybody an idea, um, 
that kind of gives everybody an idea of when they're looking for therapists and you see all these different names, um, you can kind of use this podcast as a resource to come back and get just a, a short um, summary of what each of those terms mean. Um, so there is cultural competency. I know you mentioned multi- multicultural uh, competency. I think you, I think that's what mm-hmm. you said. Okay. So I know when I was looking, there were some people that didn't have anything listed. And then there were some people that had um, different cultural competencies listed. And um, when I was in Miami, particularly, there were people that um, either uh, special, I don't want to say specialize. I don't know if that's how you're supposed to say it, but specialize in either people that were Spanish or people that um, were West Indian or from the Caribbean or um, people that specifically um, specialize in like people that are from Haiti or of Haitian descent and things like that. Um, So can you talk a little bit more about like as a practitioner, a provider, what what does like cultural competency mean outside of, I guess, obvious? So this is a set of um, values, attitudes, knowledge, skills that a person um, possesses through um, various means, but they're able to like use those set of competencies in order to inform, understand a client or patient from a wider lens. And so being able to understand this individual, being able to treat this individual, you know, from this nuanced and um, complicated lens, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so the cultural competency is not necessarily one dimension um, because certainly you could have a cultural competency for working with Latinos or Latino women or, Asian men or, you know, people of a certain um, ethnic or religious background, you know, so like there are multiple spheres in terms of how you can exhibit that cultural competency, you know, because it's not necessarily to say that a person's cultural, culturally competent. I mean, because and actually, you know what, let me backtrack a little bit, because a person can be culturally sensitive, meaning that they are aware that these differences um, exist but they may not necessarily possess the skills, the attitudes, um, the belief system in order to be able to implement those changes or implement that understanding in order to affect the patient or the client. So there is a difference between cultural sensitivity and cultural competency. Very much so, a big difference. You know, so a person who mentions it, right? But they're not exactly sure in terms of how do I implement this and working with say a middle-aged black woman mm-hmm. right or you know so they understand that these things happen but in terms of those interventions those interventions may come from a very limited perspective that reflects um the experiences of you know of a well-to-do white woman who is 25 or 29 years old right so so it's, it's constantly operating on that sphere in terms of thinking about what are the belief systems that I bring into the therapy session? What are those skills? 
And what is it that I'm saying? So my mere presence, you know, of being different affects the therapy. And how is it that I can certainly create this egalitarian um, therapeutic session so that my patient, my client feels um, asserted enough to make their needs known and certainly when maybe boundaries are being violated to be able to voice that to me as a therapist with power. Right, right. That makes sense. That makes sense. So um, that's really good because I didn't, I thought that cultural sensitivity and cultural competency would be kind of one and the same because I see culturally sensitive on a lot of listings, but I think, like you said, cultural competency is having not just an awareness, but like an understanding of how to now implement it into whatever type of treatment or sessions that, that are being had. Okay. That is helpful. Very helpful. So the other thing I want to talk about is, um, a lot of, not a lot, not, that's too broad. I don't actually know the percentage, (laughs) but there are profiles that will say that they are religious uh, based or spiritual based, or I've seen some that, um, that are kind of open to, uh, like they're kind of open to implementing religion, but it's not a, a basis in Miami. I saw a lot of people, particularly the, the black providers that I found were very religious uh, uh, based in Christianity, which I think is great for people to know off the bat if that's something that they're interested in. Um, but I think all, vice uh, on the kind of flip side, if that's not necessarily where you want your um, where you want your sessions to be centered, it's also good to know that um, off the bat. So when uh, when a provider has listed that they are Christian based or maybe they're Jewish based or um, does that mean that that provider is Jewish themselves or Christian based themselves or Buddhist or whatever it may be or does that just mean that they like what does that mean are it just means that they're Christian or does it mean that their practice their therapy is going to be coming from that type of perspective more often than not it means that this is where um, the orientation is housed at so it's going to be certainly um, the orientation at which I, by which I treat you can be from this perspective, whether it's Christian, whether it's um, Jewish. So more often than not, that's what it means. And the person may or may not you know, have that identity. More often than not, may, they probably do. You know, I would gander and guess. Okay. But, you know, someone is based, that's more so the orientation. Okay. And then for somebody that has maybe, um, spiritual, spiritually based, um, like how do those sessions differ between one that is not necessarily spiritually based? You know, um, so for, so, so I think it's important to make a different or differentiate between maybe religious and spiritual oriented, um, therapies. So, and of course, like when I say like a religious orientation, I'm speaking of like more traditional Judeo, Christian, Muslim um, orientations versus um, more spiritual, where there's not a, a clear God deity orientation. It could be, but you know, certainly it's not um, 
but it, the spiritual orientation is a lot broader, you know, in a sense where um, people often use like crystal work or energy work, right? Or they could also use like Reiki training, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, so like some of those, and, and of course, like I'm, I'm referencing very specific modalities, but that just more so, uh, I think that just provides a specific example of how broad the spiritual spectrum can be. Yeah. So in terms of, let's say, um, therapy session from a religious orientation. So in terms of the psychotherapist or the therapist orientation and in their intervention, whether it's of a Muslim, Judeo, Christian orientation, each intervention will be couched in terms of that religious belief system. Got it. So for example, you know, say if a person is persecuting themselves, you know, um, there's nothing that I ever do that's good. You know, there's nothing that I've ever done that's resulted in anything good. You know, the psychotherapist intervention may focus on is this more so in terms of how God, you know, would have you see yourself? Right. You know, is this what the, tell me, you know, help me to understand in terms of how the, the sacrifice from a Judeo-Christian perspective, how, how the sacrifice on the cross aligns with that belief. Right, right. You know, and, and then, so it- Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> but, you know, certainly then it takes a bit of cognitive behavioral where it challenges the person's thoughts, but it's still couched within their religious orientation, right? And, you know, same, same thing certainly with the Muslim orientation, like where they take certainly the tenets from the religious texts in order to help the person align their belief systems with the edict from the religious text in terms of the belief system in order to more closely align so that that dissension is reduced and this person can reach more harmony in terms of how they see themselves as it aligns with this view of like how Christ, Allah, or, you know, God, Yahweh would see them, right? Right, right. On the other side of a spiritual orientation, the spiritual orientation, you know, certainly that's a lot broader, Mm -hmm. you know, in a sense of, you know, so, or maybe even like using just in terms of just energies or using like one's understanding and appreciation for nature, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of how nature certainly reinforces certain ideas, you know? Um, so like I say, again, let's say the same example of person who's persecuting themselves over and over and over. They talk about this example of them um, or they give an example of them, you know, they were out and they were, you know, walking and they saw this bird and this bird was so beautiful. And the psychotherapist may say, you know, it seems that maybe nature was sort of, you know, was giving you a really different message. You know, the fact that you saw this really beautiful bird who serenaded you today. Mm-hmm. You know, and certainly using certainly the spiritual orientation of nature in this um, instance in order to help the person to reduce the personal persecution and to allow, align themselves more so with, with their external environment yeah was telling them and informing them yeah thank you for that I 
I think it's really important for people to know that there are um, different providers that have these kind of specialties, um, not just spiritual, but I think it's really important, particularly in the in the Black community, to understand that there are religious-based pr- uh, providers. There are religious-based therapists and, you know, marriage and family t- therapists, um, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists that can... Um, that you don't have to feel like you are, I don't want to say going outside of the church to receive help because that that's what you're doing, but you can receive help in a way that still integrates your beliefs and still kind of keeps you in the, the oneness with whoever you're worshiping um, in whatever religion it may be. But um, I think, I, I wonder sometimes if there is the assumption that that is not available in our community Mm-hmm. And that is, can be a deterrent. Like we already know that there are a lot of people in our community that are very church-based and church-oriented. And that has been a huge part of their life um, for most of their lives. And sometimes the church can also be a deterrent towards um, seeking mental health help mm-hmm. outside of, you know, God and the church and mm-hmm. your pastor. Um, so for anybody that is listening, like if you are religious based, if you are a Christian or a Muslim or whatever it may be, just know that if you are searching for a therapist, there are people that, um, yeah, have those things in common and can help you from that perspective. So, um, no need to be deterred. Right. Yes. Um, alter- alternately, I don't want to say alternately, but hopping into a completely uh, different subject. So one thing I see sometimes is, um, providers that are LGBTQ friendly. And I think that is also something that is very important that people know is available, Um, particularly because there are are a lot of um, layers within the Black community uh, when it comes to um, LGBTQ um, Black people and how they move around within our community and sometimes feel like they're not maybe accepted in our community, especially like if we're talking about very church-based parts of the community. So can you talk a little bit about what that means to be LGBTQ friendly? Um, I know like earlier you said like uh, cultural sensitivity versus actual competency. And is there a difference? Is there um, a way to distinguish like LGBTQ friendly versus actually competent? And yeah, that work. Right, and, and actually it's the same difference, you know, that we were alluding to a little bit earlier with the cultural competency versus the cultural sensitivity, right? For people who are LGBT um, friendly or generally allies, right? This is a safe place where you can disclose um, your identity in an authentic way and you will not be persecuted, more so you will be embraced with warmth and with love. It does not necessarily, it can, but it does not necessarily include that these individuals are culturally competent to treat this individual, right? So what happens, I think, in a lot of uh, practices, like I say, if you're in a rural practice or if you're seeking out like a very specific um, demographic of psychotherapists, it may be really difficult to find someone who's culturally competent, right? And so, aligning and finding someone who is friendly can certainly um, help to provide some some buffer, some support, especially in the face of 
perhaps maybe uh, a great deal of criticism or just a little lack of support during this really turbulent and this tumultuous time. Yeah. You know, so uh, finding someone who is friendly or, or an ally versus someone who is culturally competent. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a um, bit of a more difficult place, you know, to find, especially um, when you're working with maybe some of the other different identities within the LGBTIAA um, modality or, or the spectrum. Right. Because again, you know, just like we were talking about a little bit earlier with these different spheres, right? Just because you're culturally competent in terms of working with LGBT doesn't necessarily mean that you're culturally competent in working with like different spokes of the sphere, if you will. Yeah, that makes sense. So with like, let's say somebody is, um, somebody is, uh, somebody's profile has something that alludes to them being like working with people that are trans or working particularly with maybe um black uh queer um women like or people that are non-binary so is that something that somebody would see listed in their profile or is that something you'd have to like find out in a conversation like in that consultation phase more often than not um for um a person who will list it um i think it's fair to assess that this person is at least sensitive, right? Or is friendly. In terms of their degree of competency, I think that's more so where you can ascertain that through the profile and maybe through the 15 minute consultation. You know, I think that's where that like pre-work really um, becomes integral to really figure out, can this person, can this psychotherapist, can this mental health provider really help me to transition during this really difficult time of my life, you know, but I think it is fair to say that if a person has listed in their profile that they see this, not maybe not necessarily, um, and it may not necessarily be um, a competency. I actually have to look back at psychology today because if, because it's more so like areas of, of, of specialty, right. but it's not necessarily areas of competency, which is a big difference. You know, so you can specialize in something without necessarily having the certifications or the specific skills, you know, in order to treat individuals who um, exhibit, you know, symptoms or problems consistent with that problem. Right. So another, another thing I wonder about is obviously, um, not obviously, but sometimes you can tell um, uh, from somebody's profile picture if they are black or if they are Asian or something like that, like that is obviously openly disclosed if they um, are like not ambiguous. So for somebody that is an LGBTQIA plus friendly provider, is, is it safe to assume that they themselves are LGBTQ or is there like part of the community? Is that um, something that providers openly disclose or like I guess just from expectations um from somebody that is searching like are they part of the community or are they an ally of the community you know and and honestly you know I think it might be easier question to ask a person ask the provider if they are an ally okay you know because I think whether or not they are a part of the community right 
because if you're asking, are they a part of the community, meaning are they a practicing member of the community, or are they more so a part of the community in terms of being an ally, right? So that may not necessarily be a dis- disclosure that the provider is willing, you know, to provide. Okay. But in terms of whether or not they're an ally or they're friendly, I think that that's an area that's easier to negotiate in terms of really understanding whether or not this individual can, you know, truly help you. Um, and I do think some of it oftentimes, you know, certainly comes about, you know, certainly through self-referrals, mm-hmm. which may or may not be the case, you know, certainly for some of our LGBTQ, I, um, Black youth, you know, in terms of being able to find through word of mouth, you know, providers who are friendly and allies. But I can't recognize that that's not always the case. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that's really good to know. And um, as far as anything else that may be listed on that long list, like I know, okay, so I know when you go, sometimes when you go to a profile, you will see, um, you know, some of their specialties. So it could be like, couples therapy, it could be anxiety, depression, um, you know, bipolar disorder, and it may have uh, different mental disorders, Mm -hmm. uh, mental illnesses that they work with on there. Um, If you don't necessarily see everything that you're looking for on there, should you still look for the therapist? Like, let's say I'm looking for anxiety, depression, and ADD or something like that. And I don't see ADD on there. Should I still reach out to them if the rest of their profile kind of fits what I'm looking for? Very much so. Because the thing about it is that even though you may not necessarily conceptualize your, or maybe because you conceptualize these problems as being separate, working with the provider, they may see certainly a similar or one source. And so through their work, through the assessment, through the diagnostic impressions, they, you know, understand and conceptualize the problem as, you know, having a single source. And so through that treatment, you know, you can receive um, help for depressive symptoms, anxious symptoms, the problems with inattention. And so through that, by being willing and certainly open to further explore that process for the psychotherapist, it can certainly uncover quite a a great deal of like insight and certainly help down the road, even though you may not necessarily see that from the outset. Okay. Okay. No, that's helpful. That's very helpful. Um, and as far as the different types of ways you can communicate with your therapist. So of course now virtual is a big thing. Um, I think when I first started looking, a lot of people were not doing virtual. A lot of people were just, uh, working with people in person. So, there's virtual, there's in-person. I know that there's group therapy, group therapy offered. Um, but for you, like, what are some of the, maybe some of the differences outside of the obvious from working uh, virtually with a provider versus working in person? And, you know, how can somebody make that distinguish? Uh, like, how can they, how can somebody make that choice for themselves? If they're like, I don't know if I want to meet with them on Zoom, or I don't know if I want to actually go to the office. Right, right. You know, so that's the thing about it is that, you know, so throughout the pandemic, I've had new patients who have um, made a couple of different choices just based off of their personal needs in terms of, um, and this has been really tough, you know, but for some, 
like they wanted to meet in person, like the first two or three sessions in order to establish rapport. And then we transitioned um, to virtual sessions, especially like during the height of the pandemic um, periods where prior to like vaccines and things of that nature, you know, and so we were able to certainly maintain, you know, our relationship through establishing rapport for those first couple of sessions. Um, for others, you know, perhaps maybe because of their presenting problem, whether it's social anxiety or contamination fears, right? They prefer exclusively um, virtual therapy. And of course, I'm speaking about a very specific subset of, of patients, right? And so, um, you know, but I think a lot of that does enter in in terms of being able to converse with your psychotherapist in terms of what are the goals for therapy? Because we don't necessarily want you to engage in a modality that's going to reinforce, further reinforce the problem. Mm. If you know we can engage in an alternate form that's still healthy um, for you and for your loved ones and for the psychotherapist as well. Yeah. And just a little bit about um, taking or doing virtual therapy, like can you give a few quick pieces of advice for anybody that is going to decide to do virtual therapy and how to kind of like create an environment that um, makes them feel safe enough to open up? You know, I, I think definitely in terms of like finding a quiet place, a place where you can um, disclose without fear of having people um, overhear, you know, your um, session with your psychotherapist is really important. I think in terms of being able to protect that space, that space and certainly uh, that time, if you have that well, more, well definitely protecting the time, making sure that you give yourself 15 minutes before, you know, some time afterward the session, but making sure that you protect that time, you know, in order to give yourself um, more so honestly, like that love that you need during, you know, that hour. Yeah. But also protecting that space if you can in terms of making sure that you have a dedicated space, you know, where you can go to in order to um, create like the intimacy, you know, with your psychotherapist. I think that those are some of the primary ways in which, you know, you can facilitate some of the, um, the more intimate details that can be created through um, an in vivo therapy session that patients have found to be really helpful. Hmm. I think also maybe sometimes like using headphones because yeah. oftentimes that way amplifies the um, the conversation, you know, and, and it also gives that sense of intimacy without a fear of people, you know, overhearing what you're talking about or processing with your psychotherapist. Um, so I think, you know, again, like some, some of those are some ways I think in order to emulate the intimacy of the psychotherapy session. Yeah. No, that's super helpful. So grab some headphones, try to find a quiet place, get yourself in the right mindset. Um, and also one thing, try to, if you can, like buffer your schedule before and after, if you can. I know this is not an option for everybody. Some people are like having their sessions in the car while they're waiting for their kids to come out of school. So, but if you can give yourself a little buffer, because I know for me, when I would leave a therapy session, it is a bit of like a come down <laughs> from the session and there's a lot of processing that happens after in the silence um <laughs> that happens after those sessions so if you're able to give yourself some breathing room um 
just do that. And that way you're not completely drained <laughs> or overwhelmed mm-hmm. or just like rushing into the next thing while you're, you're still processing all these, you know, things that have just been talked about. Um, so one thing I want to ask about, um, if you could kind of give us the rundown of the different titles that you may see. So obviously you, I, you've got a lot of acronyms. I know the easy way I remember Dr. Stevens is she's a licensed psychologist, but I know like I see PhD, APBP, ABPP. Right. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of acronyms in the world of mental health and it can be a right. little overwhelming when you're looking at it. So can you kind of give us an idea of what we would see? Right. So I think if we just start off with it, two big categories in terms of a master level and a doctoral level um, mental health practitioner. So typically um, master level, you will see M somewhere in the acronym, LMHC, um, L, well, LPC, licensed practical counselor practice, practical counselor, I forget what the middle is. P stands for, but those are master level um, psychotherapists. MFT, marriage family, um, therapists, those are all master level therapists, right? Um, the two doctoral level um, providers, mental health providers are PsyD and PhD. So a PsyD is a person who has um, pursued and completed a doctorate in psychology and their doctorate more so focused on clinical practice, whereas a PhD, a PhD is a doctorate in philosophy where a person has pursued the practice as well as the research component of clinical or counseling psychology. And so society can be counseling, but more so often clinical psychology. Okay. And more and more programs are clinical psychology. Okay. No, that's really helpful. So, and if I see an L in front, does that usually stand for licensed? More often than not, right? And so um, certainly like in the state of Florida, and like in order to have that um, title, you would need to um, complete your hours, right? In order to be able to practice independently. So like one can still practice, but then they would have to practice under the supervision of, of a licensed master level uh, therapist. And so um, they wouldn't necessarily carry like the licensed um, portion of it. Okay. Or and they then- would still be in turn. Okay. And then I see some where they are counselors, um, like what, what education level is that? And then what, um, what do they offer? That's like different, uh, how do those counseling sessions look different than obviously somebody that has a bit more education? That's a good question. So like, I think like those are more so like, um, ancillary types of providers. So whether they are like a, bachelor level, if you will, um, counselor. So these individuals typically don't specialize in providing um, mental health treatment. So they have more of a generalist approach. And so um, typically um, they work within crisis stabilization or like a um, psychiatric facility. And they have very specific skills and they receive certifications, you know, to work with a specific type of like population. Um, And then, of course, like I think along with that, you know, you could also have like coaches 
right? Mm-hmm. You have like different coaches and I know that there are like different subtypes of coaches and these um, coaches, they can certainly have any um, number of degrees, whether it's a bachelor's or master's or maybe even a PhD. And but they receive a certification in whatever their purported specialized area of coaching is. Okay. And so compared to certainly the master level and the doctoral level, um, so master level um, providers, they have at least at least two years of coursework and then one or two years of practice. For um, doctoral level uh, providers, there's two to four years of didactic coursework and then two to three years at least, more so like four years of practice implementing those skills. That's pre-licensure and then after licensure. You know, there are 2,000 or so more hours that they need to complete in order to gain licensure. So there's a vast difference between your didactic coursework and the practice, typically between um, like a bachelor's level um, or a person who's trained at the bachelor's level. Got it, got it, got it. So that kind of gives people an idea of like when you're looking at these acronyms, what you're actually looking at and how to decipher between, um, between them. Um, so we talked a little bit about the titles. What about, um, the form of payment or not necessarily the form of payment, but how, like if people take insurance, if they don't take insurance and then, um, yeah, let's just start there as far as, uh, how we can tell if somebody takes insurance and then takes our insurance particularly. Right. So more often than not, that's listed on the Psychology Today um, profile in terms of whether they accept insurance or they don't accept insurance, or if you go to their website, that's typically pretty clearly laid out under payments or, or fees. Um, and oftentimes it'll list like the fees for like private pay patients, which is um, the title that we give individuals or more so for um, not accepting insurance. And then for those of us who do accept insurance, um, whether they are out of network, meaning that it is on us, the responsibility of the patient, the client to submit the paperwork for reimbursement to the um, patient in that case. So you would pay the psychotherapist directly. They would give you a super bill. So this is an insurance form that they would more often than not complete. And they would give it to you as patient, the client, to submit to your insurance company for reimbursement on your behalf. Okay. So that's super bill. And I've heard the term, I think we've talked about the term super bill a little bit, but when, so basically I would go and have my appointment with you. And then is it after every single appointment that you give me this super bill and is it like an email or is it like a paper, um, you know, form that I get and I just like snap a picture and send it to my insurance? Is that how that works? No, they're very specific. So okay, <laughs> <laughs> they want the original. Oh, you know, okay. you send the original form, right? And so mm-hmm. oftentimes, like, and, and I think it just depends on like personal preference. Like, um, some patients with psychotherapists, they'll do like every four sessions, you know, or they'll give you a super bill after every session. You know, and I, I do think it, you know, depends on, you know, what you negotiate with your psychotherapist and what your needs are as a patient, right? If you need to be reimbursed quickly, you're more so going to want a super bill after every session. Right. And so that super bill, I then have to mail it to my insurance company? 
Yes, you mail that to your insurance company. Wow, so I can't take a picture of it. Probably not, huh? Probably not a good idea to. Not from what I remember. Not from okay. what I remember. Like I said, this, they're very specific. And, you know, I think as just an aside, insurance companies always find their ways to keep their money and to mm-hmm. keep yours. Yep, <laughs> yep. <laughs> keep all of the money. <laughs> so send them the bill. Send them the bill in a package. Make sure it's glued shut so nobody, nothing's wrong with it. Um, but that's also like a hurdle that can be, I, I feel like money and mental health is always a touchy subject and it's a bit frustrating for me. I won't go into that because that's a whole nother episode. But um, if you are um, seeing a provider at a network, then make sure you're getting your super bills and make sure you're turning in the actual document to your insurance company and following up with them for your yes. reimbursement. Yes, and make sure every I is dotted and T is crossed, right? So making sure that your diagnosis is listed, the visits are completely completed, are completely filled out because again, the insurance is looking for ways to reject the bill. Right, that's sad, but that's true. It it is, you know, and and even though it's really cumbersome, I will call the insurance company, hey, I have this super bill. This is what I have filled out. I want to make sure that everything is completed correctly before you send it in and then you know I mean I know it's expensive you know maybe just send it out there before but I would probably send it certified as well or at least return receipt you know to know okay. that they can't receive it okay no that's a good idea so send it certified mail or get a return receipt so you know for sure that they got it and they can't say well we haven't received it um that's good to know and as far as the cost so I know you said some of the fees if you were to pay yourself um, not using your insurance, that um, sometimes the fees are listed on the provider's website. Um, is Can we talk a little bit about a, sl- a sliding scale? I know we've talked about it before, but just kind of a recap of um, the fees, what those look like, and then um, if somebody does a, a sliding scale, where is that indicated? And then how do I talk to them about it? Right. So um, oftentimes, you know, I found that many uh, providers, they will list whether or not they have a sliding scale on, on their profile page, whether it's on Psychology Day or their website. Um, in order to find the specifics around the sliding scale, that's where a conversation with the front desk or with the psychotherapist or a mental health provider, you know, can be really helpful because then they'll let you know in terms of what documentation you need to qualify for the sliding scale. Um, and certainly like fees can range anywhere from as low as like $50 to up to 250, 275, depending on, you know, like where you're located. I've seen it higher in South Florida, of course, you know, um, but like that's generally the range, you know, that, um, for the provision of mental health services. Okay. That's good to know. So. Um, if you are going to their profile and you are, and you go to the website and see, Ooh, this is a lot of money. Um, definitely keep an eye out for people that do offer a sliding scale. If you are, um, on a tighter budget and just give them a call. Um, no need to be embarrassed. I asked for a sliding scale multiple times because in that, at that particular time, that's what I needed to do to get, um, to get the help. So, um, and 
providers are used to talking about those things. So no need to be shy. And also if, if the price point is not going to work, then don't then put yourself into financial distress because it's not going to work either find another option, find somebody else, or, um, there's a lot of different resources out there. So please don't feel like if you can't afford the 200, 275 an hour, um, provider, find somebody else, um, ask around, but there are, there are lots of different options out there. So, um, don't give up, (laughs) even though it can be a little bit frustrating, do not give up. Um, let's see. So, we talked a little bit about money. We talked about sliding scales, the different titles that we'll see. Um, just want to talk a little bit about when you find somebody, you know, like I'm um, Jane Doe and I'm looking for a therapist and now I found one. I've gone to psychology today or like therapyforblackgirls.com and I've looked in the directory. I found somebody in my area and like, what do I do now? So I think that's where you set up the 15-minute consultation. Okay, perfect. (laughs) So there's a 15-minute consultation offered. Sometimes, not all the time. Okay. But sometimes there there is, you know, but I mean, but honestly, but if you feel like there's a good fit based off of what you've read and you're, you know, everything looks to be a good fit. Go ahead. Go set set up the first appointment. You know, certainly. And then give yourself an opportunity to have three sessions, you know, with that pick, with, with the provider in order to establish recording to see whether or not things will work or not. Okay. So the 15 minute consultation, if it's available, so do that. And then in that 15 minute consultation, what am I looking for? What should I be telling, um, you know, the provider or look or asking the provider? Well, I think, you know, certainly one in terms of their approach to your problem, you know, so I think maybe trying to give it down to like a 30 second to 60 minute synopsis of what the problem is you know what would be your approach for this problem um you know i've tried xyz in the past um what are some ways that you feel like you and i can work together in order to um, get over this hump um in terms of whether or not you might think medication is appropriate you know what's your view on that you know, I think for the patient as well as for the provider, that's important to know, are there other resources that, you know, you can um, provide me with? Because, of course, you know, I think having a multi-pronged approach is really important um, in terms of finding out, you know, about logistics in terms of, like, what's the cancellation policy? What's the no-show policy? Um, what's the pay policy? You know, like, when you expect, you know, to receive payment, you know, let's say if I make payment. Um, you know, like just talk about very realistic things that happen in day-to-day life, right? Yeah. Um, Probably the hours too, like when are they available? Mm -hmm. Does it fit the times that you're available? Um, Yeah, all of those things are really good. So like I would suggest, I'm a super organized person, so I would suggest writing stuff down, like write some of these points down because it is a little bit nerve-wracking if you've never done that before and never... A, if you've never talked to any mental health professional in your life, and now you've got to get on the phone and in 15 minutes determine like whether it's a good fit and hopefully they think it's a good fit as well. So let's, what happens if I have this 15 minute conversation and at the end of it, this person that I'm speaking to goes, 
well, I don't think I'm actually the best person for you. Like, what should I do next? Because mm-hmm. that can so, happen too. Yeah, that very well could happen, you know. Well, you know, now that I've described, you know, like what I'm seeking, do you have um, providers in mind who would be a good fit for me? Um, you know, so I think always using the therapist that you're talking to, you know, because oftentimes they have a broader network of individuals who may or may not have profiles available on the internet, you know, that you may not have access to. I think some going there um, or asking referrals from them is a really great idea. Um, and, and honestly, I think like that's one of the best ways where patients can help to jumpstart their, their next search is to get the referrals. Okay. So don't be deterred. If for some reason, the person says that it's, it's not a good fit for whatever reason it may be, um, you know, ask them questions and don't stop your search. Um, and then like Dr. Steven said, um, do not stop after one session. If like, give it a try, go to three sessions, um, try to stick it out and try to like buy into the process. I know I've had friends that have said, you know, they've gone to see somebody and after the first or second one, they're like, ah, it's not working. It's, you know, but sometimes I think it takes us opening up a little bit more and kind of buying into the process, especially if you've never done it before, um, or never really had success with therapy before, um, give it a try. And if after three sessions, you're like, this is still not working, then it's back to the drawing board. Um, Dr. Stevens, is there any other suggestions you have? Um, I think we've gone over a lot today, which is going to be super helpful for people that are looking, but any other suggestions from your perspective of what to, you know, keep in mind when you're looking for the right therapist? I mean, I think in terms of being open and communicative with your potential therapist, you know, in terms of like what you're thinking and what you're feeling, um, you know, and like you said, it can be a bit overwhelming. It can be somewhat intimidating, you know, but I think, you know, someone starting from that place of authenticity, authenticity and, and honesty is really important in any uh, relationship with a psychotherapist. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Stevens. Um, as always, I really appreciate all of your insight and your advice. Um, I cannot wait to have you back on the show. Um, but thank you for your time. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, it's just great to talk to you and great to hear your perspective on things. I really hope that this episode is helpful for people, um, in making that first step, or maybe this is like the 10th step or the 20th step, but hopefully, um, this was helpful and, um, yeah. Thanks, Dr. Stevens. Thank you for having me again. (laughs) Yes, no problem. Um, if you guys are interested in reaching out to Dr. Stevens, um, her information is in the description below. Um, I've also included some helpful websites, um, that you can go to if you are looking for a therapist. Um, hopefully they are helpful and, If you end up finding one um, with the uh, information that's in the the description, like let me know if you're open to it, how it it goes. Um, Hit me up on Instagram. Um, At Black Girls Have Anxiety 2 is the profile. Send me a DM, send me a message, leave a comment. I would love to hear how it's going um, or any struggles that you uh, run into when you are looking for a therapist. So um, yeah, I appreciate everybody for listening. Thank you to everybody all over um, that's tuning in. I see you. I acknowledge you. And I thank you for like your continued support of my podcast. Um, And yeah, I hope that everybody is enjoying the holidays. 
Um, if you're listening to it and it, the holidays have come and gone, well, I hope you're enjoying your day. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Stevens, again. And thank you to everybody that's listening. Um, and I will talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Black Girls Have Anxiety Too. No matter where you are in the world, I really appreciate your support. See you again on the next episode, but until then, follow us on Instagram at Black Girls Have Anxiety Too and on Twitter at Anxious Black Girls. That's Anxious BLK Girls. And remember, just because you're struggling doesn't mean you have to struggle in silence. The more we talk about it, the more we heal.